Well, good evening, everyone. I don't know about you, but I'm very happy to be here. I want to bring you all greetings from your brothers and sisters in Cuba. Life for the believers there is very, very difficult. Life for everybody there is very, very difficult. And I want to begin by telling you a couple of things that I'm sure many of you will not believe, but I'm going to ask you to stretch your mind and try to accept what I'm about to tell you. Every single one of you has had a day today that is a dream for the world. This day that you've had today, the food you've eaten, the clothes you wear, the friends that surround you, the people that care about you, the lack of care and concern is something most people in the world do not understand. The second thing I want to tell you is that there are millions and millions and millions of Christians all over the world who in their entire life will never know a day like you've had today. They will never know what you have experienced in this day. And I love your singing, and I love the enthusiasm. But I want to tell you, when you are in chains, or in prison, or hungry, or hunted, it's a lot harder to sing those songs. And to sing them, and mean them, and sing them, and believe them. But I want you to understand that there are people all over the world tonight who are doing that very thing. We live in a world that hates what we're doing here. And it's coming through more and more, unfortunately, in our own country. Believe it or not, this nation was founded on everything that we're doing at this camp. The foundation of this land and the blessing of this country have been the result of the fact that people who believe what we believe and were willing to risk everything, and many of them did risk everything, they paid a horrendous price. And so strong was their impact in history that we're still here today and we're able to do what we do. Unfortunately, we're losing it. And I might ask a question. How many of you today had your excitement, your enthusiasm, your enjoyment dimmed or blunted by the fear that the police were going to come in and possibly arrest every single one of you? I doubt that any of you had that thought in your mind. Because we say that can't happen. We live in America. But I will tell you that in India and in China and in certain places in Latin and South America and many countries in Africa and certainly in Pakistan, there are gatherings like this, but they never know if they'll be able to get through without being raided, arrested, or attacked. Now, those are sobering thoughts, but we're talking about 
running to win. You know, everyone loves the start of the race. Jed challenged us last night, and it was fun watching the guys as they ran through. And I don't know if you noticed, but as they ran through at different points, different ones of them had maybe more of a challenge or more difficulty than the others. And then at the next little area of challenge, maybe those things changed. At the beginning of a race, everybody wants to be out front. The question is not who's out front at the beginning of the race. The question is who's out front at the end. And you know, when we have our races, when we have our Olympic Games, when we have our athletic contests, there's usually a stand someplace, a place where the first, the second, and the third place winner are going to stand. And there's one thing every single one of us know before that race even starts. Someone is going to stand in each of those places. And we may have our favorite, and we may have the one that we're rooting for, cheering for, but ultimately we have to wait and see who is on the winner's stand. It's an amazing thing in world competition. When you get to the very top, when you have the very best of the best competing against each other, to stand in that place, to know that the eyes of the whole world are on you, that you have given everything you had to give, and you stand, now stand in the winner's place. I can't imagine what it's like because I've never been there. But I've won my share of competitions on lower levels, and that was pretty heady for me. But I want you to understand something, young people. You're not competing against anyone else. You're not competing against your friends. You're not competing against Christians in other countries. Guys are not competing against other guys. Girls are not competing against other girls. You only have to beat one person. There's only one person that you have got to be ahead of. And that's you. You are your worst nightmare. You are your toughest competitor. And you will either win or lose the race to the you that is the old you or the you that is the new you in Christ. I want to start with a word of prayer because I want to pick up on the marvelous. We've had two great classes. Uh, Jed challenged us on the race and running the race to win. Louis Zamperini, believe it or not, I remember sitting in our living room at the ranch where I grew up when I was five years old. Some people had come to visit my father, and they were talking about his running career. And I remember the guy saying, if it hadn't been for World War II, who would have been the next world champion? And I was only five years old, and I never forgot his name. He said Louis Zamperini. So the stories that you heard last night were about a real champion, and not just because he was a champion athletically, but so much more. The fact that he became a child of God by faith, 
and he became a champion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're hoping each and every one of you are going to become. So I want to pick up on the challenge Jed gave us and the uh, great class we had this morning as Blair laid out the gospel. You know, the gospel is the simplest message in the world and yet is the most difficult thing to find access to that simple message. Almost everyone messes it up. I have heard gospel invitations that just make me cover my head, that make me want to just ram my head into a wall. Because they clutter up the simplest message in the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray and let's get into the challenge for the night. Father, as I come before your throne, I don't come alone. I am carrying every one of these young men and young ladies Every one of the staff, the teachers, the marvelous team that's pulled this camp together, those of us who are older, maybe close to the end of our race. Father, we are standing before your throne together tonight, and we realize that we have a battle on our hands right now. Because your word in this world is a foreign entity, and it's a hated message. And I know that the devil and his forces and his henchmen will do everything possible to distract young minds and old minds alike from focusing on your word. So, Father, as we stand in your presence, my prayer is that God the Holy Spirit will embrace this crowd tonight and I pray that you will bring calm and quiet to each and every heart and soul. I ask that you will deliver us from every distraction. Take away the clutter that so often intrudes into our minds. And help us for these few brief moments to just be able to set all other things aside and fix our eyes on the message that you have for us tonight. Open your word to us. Let it be the bread of life to our souls. Strengthen and nourish us and bring us ever closer to the people you have called us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The race, young people, is difficult. The race is not to the weak, is not to the faint, is to the strong the enduring, and the committed. And so I want you to open with me to a book of a man who understood everything that I hope to share with you tonight far better than I ever will, probably. But he's a man I want to introduce to you, and his name is James. The book of James. The book of James toward the end of your Bible, right after Hebrews and right before 1 Peter. I'm going to be teaching the book of James in our Bible conference in October in Arizona. The book of James is a book that is oftentimes not studied because it's tough love. It demands a lot of us. 
It sets before us the realities of life, the challenges of our faith, and the pitfalls that we all face. And James doesn't pull any punches. He makes it very clear what God requires of us, but he also makes it very clear that God supplies everything we need to accomplish his plan for our life. And as we look into the book of James, and, you know, I have to laugh. My wife, by the way, sends her greetings. She would love to be here. Many of you have asked me about her. Uh, she's at home. Our church uh, is having our first VBS this week, and they put Nan in charge, and so she's going to be dealing with all of her workers and helpers and about 30 to 35 uh, kids that are coming. In addition, our daughter-in-law, Amy, uh, is due this week. Uh, she's going to have a little boy, which will give to her and Cody two boys and two girls, uh, which is just awesome. And if any of you know Nan, there's no way she is not going to be around when a grandbaby is born. So she did ask for me to hand on her greetings, but she laughed and she said, as I was working on my classes and working on my notes, she laughed and she said, I don't know why you do this because when you get there, you just trash them and do something entirely different. And that's true. Uh, my message has already changed. Uh, and there's something to me about getting on the ground and being with the people. You know, I can study at a distance. I can prepare what I think are the classes that God would have me to prepare. And I put them all together and I've got wonderful notes here, which you'll probably not get a fraction of. But when I get on the ground, there's something about being with the people. And it's like you start picking up a sense of what you need to say. So I'm in the book of James, which is where I started. But things, of course, have changed a little bit. And uh, I'll be just picking through a few things in the notes. I meant to mention this first off, uh, but it comes to my mind. So I need to tell you. I got a text from Gary Horton uh, just a few moments ago. I saw Gary a few weeks back, uh, had a great time with him at a conference we had in Alabama. Uh, many of you have asked about him, and I would encourage you to pray for him and his family. His daughter's husband died today. Uh, his name is Emmanuel, uh, great guy. I never met him, but uh, Gary said he was just a wonderful guy. Uh, he has passed into the presence of the Lord, but their daughter, Tammy, I don't remember how many years they'd been married, uh, is really struggling. So would you please remember Tammy and Gary and their family uh, in your prayers? Let's talk about the book of James. James, most of you will be aware, was the oldest half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's very difficult when you grow up with a family member who thinks they're perfect. How difficult would it have been for James to grow up with a guy who actually was perfect? And we know from Matthew chapter 7 that James and the other brothers, there were four other half-brothers, children born to Jacob and Mary, uh, Joseph and Mary, sorry, uh, after the Lord Jesus was born, None of them believed in the Lord Jesus Christ until after the resurrection. So James was a latecomer to the family of God. 
even though he lived in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, James made up for lost time. After the Lord Jesus appeared to him following the resurrection, and you can find the record of that in 1 Corinthians 15, in about the first seven verses, James became so devoted, so dedicated, and so disciplined that he became known in Jerusalem as James the Just, or James the Righteous. They said that he spent so much time praying that his knees looked like camel knees because he developed calluses on his knees from spending all the time praying on his knees. James, as we know, in Acts chapter 15, in fact, as early as Acts chapter 12, when Peter is put in prison and the angel delivers Peter out of the prison, Peter says to those in the house that were praying for him, go tell James. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 15, when they have the Jerusalem council and there are weighty questions that have to be asked, uh, answered about the relationship of Gentile and Jewish believers, it's James who comes up with the final solution. You also need to understand a little bit of history. In about 62 BC, the Roman general Pompey put Palestine under tribute. Uh, they began to be very heavily taxed. Uh, they actually dispossessed many of the farmers of their land. Uh, a lot of their, their farms and their land was taken away. A lot of business businessmen and a lot of merchants, a lot of people who formerly had been quite wealthy, became very poor. Some of them ended up just being day workers just to survive. All of this came down through the following hundred years to about the time of James, probably not a hundred years. He probably wrote. Uh, Zane Hodges suggests that this letter may have been written as early as 34 or 35. We're talking about within a couple of years of the crucifixion and the resurrection. This is our earliest New Testament book. And so James lived in a very difficult time. And of course, what happens when governments begin to crush their people? The people begin to resist. Some find very subtle ways to resist. Some find more open ways to resist. But there is unrest, and that unrest begins to boil beneath the surface of society. And somewhere along the line, there's going to be a match that's going to light, or a spark that's going to light all kinds of problems. And of course, as most of you who know the history are aware, that actually happened shortly after the Apostle Paul was uh, put in prison the first time, 64 AD. There was a revolt that broke out in Israel. 66, the rebellion began, and that rebellion led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Jewish nation. Millions of Jews were killed. Hundreds of thousands were sold on the slave markets of the world, and the Jewish nation ceased to exist. So in light of where we stand in history, let me just give you a subtle warning. Be careful what you wish for. Be very, very careful what you wish for in our country. In the background of this, and in the time of James' writing, in fact, within probably a year or two before he wrote the book, tremendous persecution had broken out 
in Jerusalem. And that persecution was spearheaded by a guy whose name was Saul of Tarsus. And if you read Acts chapter 8 in the first four verses, you read that Saul was breathing out slaughter and destruction on the Christians. Every breath he took was like a, dra a dragon breathing fire. And the only thing he could think of is, how can I arrest and imprison and possibly put to death these people? Later in 1 Timothy, when Paul refers to himself as a chief of all sinners, he refers to himself as a violent man. The word that is used there, it's actually the word we get hubris from, hubristes, but it's actually a word that means sadistic. He calls himself a sadistic man. The word means someone who takes pleasure in the pain, sorrow, and suffering of other people. And that persecution had driven people out of Jerusalem and they went out into Judea and Samaria initially, but the persecution followed them and they kept getting scattered further and further away, which being scattered was nothing new to the Jewish people. It had been going on since 605, 606 B.C., actually going back to 725 B.C. with the Assyrian uh, captivity and then 605 with the Babylonian captivity, and then coming down to the time of Antiochus and the persecutions, uh, they were very, very used to being driven from their homeland. So as I read for you the first 12 verses now with a little bit of background, I think you'll understand more of what James has to say. Beginning in verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are dispersed or scattered abroad. By the way, if you've ever heard of the ten lost tribes, how many of you have ever heard of the ten lost tribes of Israel? It's baloney. It's baloney. He writes right here. Long after supposedly the ten tribes got lost. Who's he writing to? He doesn't say to the two tribes that got scattered. He says the 12 tribes, and if there are 12 tribes that got scattered, guess what? They knew which tribe they belonged to. Just a thought that comes into my mind, a little interest, probably more for those who are teachers. You might want to study this one out. There are some scholars who see a tremendous parallel between James. By the way, you know that in the Greek, his name is actually Yaakov, or Hebrew would be Yaakov. We would say Jacob. So his name is Jacob, right? They see a parallel between the address of Jacob to the 12 tribes here and the address in Genesis 49 of Jacob to his 12 sons. Do a little bit of a study and see how many of the prophecies Jacob made to the 12 sons James touches on in the book. I think you'll find it quite interesting. To the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, greeting. Consider it all joy. Y'all ready for some joy? Consider it all joy. You're going to love this. This has a punchline that just never quits. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Anyone here tonight going through trials? Have you had trials today? You know what one fact of life is that no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter what your life may be, no matter how elevated you may be in society, you can't escape trials. And I know that there are probably some here tonight who have 
very heavy burdens on your heart. Maybe things that you haven't shared with anyone here. By the way, I would encourage you to because people here love you. People here care about you. And if you're carrying a heavy burden, this is the place to unload it. This is the place to share it, to have people pray with you and have people encourage you. But James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You're going to have a distance run. You've got to have endurance, right? Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may, perfect, may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 12. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like a surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man should not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory. The word glory actually means to boast in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like the flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. How weird. How weird that you call on a rich man to glory in the fact that he's passing away. We'll look at that a little more in a moment. Now verse 12. And by the way, just to tie this all together, the only reason he tells you up there in verse 2 to count it all joy or consider it all joy is because it's linked to verse 12. This is the reason why you and I should be able to find joy even in the midst of hardship. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You know what James has done in 12 verses? He took you to the starting line, he took you through the race, and he took you to the winner's stand. In 12 short verses. And what I want to do is pick these verses apart because it's easy to read over them and sometimes miss the essential elements. And so I want to give you seven of the important elements in this passage. Number one, you're not in the race if you're not a child of God. Could I ask you young people tonight, again picking up on Blair's excellent class earlier, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd be? Do you know without any doubt? Do you have absolute confidence? Is your assurance based on the promise of the Word of God, not on your feelings, not on what someone has told you? I would be in the presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if I were to die tonight. Now you may say to me, why should I worry? Because I'm young. I've got a long life ahead of me. I have all this information. I can make a decision later. In the meantime, I'm going to have a good time and enjoy my growing up years. Well, I had a young man tell me that one time. His name was Billy. My parents took in kids from broken homes and bad situations, kids in trouble with the law. In addition to our own 10 kids, we often had 10 or 15 other kids living in our house. Can you imagine? 
when I tell people I was raised in a zoo, they don't believe me. I really was. A young guy named Billy came to us. Billy was the kind of guy every guy would like to be. He was good looking, had a great personality, very popular, tremendous athletic ability. I mean, if you could pack everything that you think a guy ought to have, had this beautiful kind of long, blonde, wavy hair, you know, and you just look at this kid and you just say, he's got it all. Billy had it all. But Billy had troubles in his life like all of us do. Troubles in his home, troubles in his background. And one night, Billy and I stayed up late, and I talked to him, and I asked him a question. Billy, if you died tonight, where would you be? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, do you understand the plan of God? Do you understand the message of salvation? He said, no. And so I sat there and I explained to him, we were both in high school at the time, and I explained to him what Christ had done for us. That Jesus Christ was the second member of the Godhead, that he stepped down from his throne in heaven, came down into this world, took on human flesh, lived a perfect and a holy life among us. By the way, the perfection of that life is what he wants to give you along with his own intrinsic righteousness. When you get the righteousness of Christ, you get the credit of a life lived without ever a sin. Think about that for a moment. And I explained all this to Billy, and I got done, and he sat there, and he was very thoughtful for a moment. He looked at the floor, and then he looked up at me, and he said, I believe that you're probably telling me the truth. But he said, right now, I'm young, Right now, there's so much going on in my life. I'm having such a great time. He said, when I get a little bit older, I'll make that decision. Two months later, Billy hit his head on the door of a car and died. Gone forever. I asked myself, where is he? Where is he? Is there a chance he may have trusted Christ in that short two-month period? Maybe so. But I had no evidence of it. When James writes and he says that he is a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes that are uh, scattered abroad, consider it all joy. What's the next two words? My brethren. Are you in that crowd? Because if you haven't trusted Christ, you're not there. If you haven't trusted Christ, this letter is not written to you. The challenge, of course, is set before you. This letter is written to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the first step in winning the reward, the first step in even getting into the race, you have to come to the starting line, and the starting line is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you should be saved. How many of you have heard of a big ship that went down called the Titanic? Everybody's heard of the Titanic. There were 2,300 people on the Titanic that night when that big ship crashed into an iceberg. The people that built the Titanic were so arrogant that one of them made the statement, even God himself could not sink the Titanic. Titanic went down with over 1,500 people on board, 700 the 
Estimates vary between 705, 712 people were rescued. I want you to think about this for a moment, kids. If you get nothing else out of tonight, I want you to think about this. On the Titanic, there were rich people and poor people. There were beautiful people and there were common people. There were people in high positions and there were people who had no position. Every strata of society, every level by which you can measure, there were intelligent people and there were people with just common IQ. But you know what the report was the next day when the Cunard Lines reported the accident? There were only two kinds of people. 705 saved. 1,500 and some lost. Didn't matter if you were rich or poor, good looking, bad looking, powerful, helpless. There were only two kinds of people. Those that were saved and those that were lost. Do you realize living your life right now on this planet, you're on the Titanic. This Titanic is going down and one day when the report is given, which it will be in heaven, you are going to be listed on the record as either saved or lost. Salvation is the first step, my brethren. The second thing we need to understand, it takes knowledge. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing. You have to know something. Why are we here? Why do we have Bible class? Why is it important for us to open the Word of God and for you to listen to us? Because we want you to lay hold of knowledge. And this knowledge is the most important you're ever going to get. You're not going to learn this in school. You won't learn it in business. You won't learn it in your work. You're only going to learn it when someone opens this book. By the way, there's only one thing in this world that you need, and it's right here. Right here. And you know what? They can take this away from me. All over the world, there are Christians who have had this book taken away from them. You know what remains when they take this book away from you? Only what you put of this book into your soul. Get the Word into your heart. Get the Word in your mind. Get the Word in your soul. Because James says, you are able, going through hardship, difficulty, heartbreak, whatever it may be, you are able to count it all joy if you know something. So knowing is the second step. The third step is what do you need to know? We need to understand, thirdly, that God allows testing in our life for a reason. Knowing that the testing or the trial of your faith produces Produces endurance. You know, one of the greatest things, my dad was an Olympic athlete. He ran in two Olympic Games. He was in the 1924 Los Angeles Games. The 1936, probably the greatest heartbreak of his life was when he lost just by a hair the, the 1,500 meter run in the Berlin Olympics. He set six world records in his life. That's not too bad. He had world records that were still standing when I was born over 20 years later. He knew what it was like to win. But he also understood something else. 
The trial of your faith works patience. I don't know if you've heard this story. I'll share it with you quickly, and I'm probably running out of time. When am I supposed to stop? Eight forty-five, and it's now eight twenty. Gotcha. When my dad was eight years old, he was burned in a schoolhouse fire. Whole schoolhouse burned down. He and his older brother would show up at the school, little one-room school. They would start the fire to warm it up. It was winter time, so when the teacher and the other students came, they would the school would be warm. And normally there was a can of kerosene that they would use to start the fire. And unfortunately, somebody without making mention of it or marking it had changed the kerosene to gasoline. And when they put the fire in the stove, they put some uh, coal in to start the fire and they threw the gas in. There were still hot coals from the day before. The can blew up in the hands of his older brother who died nine days later. By the way, after they were burned, they had to run home. Any of you have parents that had to walk three miles through the snow uphill both ways to school? They ran home, terribly burned. My dad said that as he ran, he could still feel the fire eating away at his legs. The flesh was falling from his legs. You wouldn't have believed how scarred his legs were. The doctors told him he'd never walk again. They wanted to amputate his legs. His parents said, no, we're not going to allow it. His mother spent hours and hours massaging those black burned legs to get the blood circulating again until finally a year later, a little eight-year-old kid was able to get out and hold onto the side of the bed and stand and then learn to walk. And then having learned to walk, to begin to run and then to run his way into the history books. As he laid in that bed at the age of eight years old, my aunt, who was his older sister, said she was standing there crying as she looked at her little brother in terrible agony. They had no, think of this, you're horribly burned all the way up to your waist and there's no painkiller, nothing. Those burns had to be scrubbed every day. No painkiller. And as she stood there crying and looking at her little brother, he spoke up. And he said, don't cry. Don't cry. God allowed this for a reason. And I will find out what the reason that he allowed it is. That's a lot of wisdom for an eight-year-old kid. You know what he was doing? He did not know where it was going to take him, but he understood something that James wants us to understand. Count it all joy. When you know that there is a God in heaven, if you're his child, nothing on this earth can touch you without his permission. The book of Job teaches us that. And if God gives permission for a heartache, a burden, something that is painful and sorrowful for you, if, the, if your heavenly Father considers it good to let that touch you, it's because he has a great plan in store for you somewhere in the future. And you might think for my dad, well, that plan was to become an Olympic and a world champion, and that was not the case. He said that was a small achievement in his life. 
You know what the big achievement was? He knew what it was like to be a kid and to fight impossible odds. And because he understood how hard it is sometimes to overcome the obstacles life throws at you, he began to put his arms around broken kids from broken families and bring them in and clothe them and feed them and send them to school. And over the years from the time I was a little child until I left home and after he and my mother took in, who knows the estimates, estimates vary from hundreds to thousands of kids. In fact, Reader's Digest did a story on him called The Man with 9,000 Miracles. That was why God let what happened to him happen. To give him an understanding of what it's like to be a child, to be a young person, to go through hurt, pain, sorrow, suffering, hopelessness. And he put his arms around those kids and did everything he could to lift them up. So James says we need salvation first. We need knowledge second. We need our faith tested third. We need maturity. Notice that he says endurance is going to have a perfect work in our life because it's going to make us perfect and complete lacking in nothing. The word perfect doesn't mean sinless. It means mature. It simply means that we're going to grow up in our faith. You can't go from the cross to the crown. I wish I had a whiteboard here because I always illustrate Here's the cross. That's the starting place. Here's the race. And it's an up and down, back and forth, rocky road. And up here is the crown. And it's there for every one of us. In fact, I'm going to share something with you you may have never thought of. I told Jed I was going to take a little bit different approach. Here's the question I'll throw out to you. It was the title that I had for my messages for you. The crown, a future or a present possession. Is it only for the future, or is it for the present? We're going to work that out. Young people, we need endurance so we can become mature. We need to grow up in our faith. And suffering does another thing for us. It shows us our lack. You ever been in a situation where you have decisions you have to make, and you're just not sure what decision to make? You know what James would call that? James would call that the aha moment when you realize you need some wisdom. I need wisdom to make decisions, to choose directions, to live my life that I don't have. That is a great place to be, providing it leads you to prayer. Look at what he says here. If any of you lack wisdom, how many of us lack wisdom here tonight? Anybody lack wisdom here tonight? Every single one of us. See, we're all in this together great place to be. None of us have all the answers. But when we lack wisdom, and what usually reveals our lack of wisdom to us is problems, trials, difficulties. And James says, when you discover that you're lacking wisdom, that's a good thing. What you need to do now is get down on your knees and you need to pray in faith that God will give you wisdom. God reveals our lack of wisdom so that he can provide the wisdom that we lack. What does he want us to do to get it? Prayer. So you not only need to be saved, you not only need to be adding to your knowledge and having your faith tested. That's the one thing in this whole line that I have no doubt is going to happen to you. 
You need to be growing into spiritual maturity and praying that God will give you wisdom. And you need to pray in faith. You need to pray in faith. I'm not going to read through the whole thing again, but James said if you ask God for wisdom and you doubt He's going to give it to you, I guarantee you He's not going to give it to you. He says if you pray with doubt in your heart, well, I'd like to ask for this, but God probably won't do it anyway. You're not going to get anything in answer to your prayer because you are a double-minded man or woman. You are unstable in everything you do, including your prayers. How often we pray, and the very prayer that we're praying, we're saying, He's not going to answer. And guess what? He doesn't answer. Because God doesn't answer the prayer of doubt. He answers the prayer of faith. When we get that wisdom by praying in faith, we come to the climax of the journey. Glory in your position. You know, I was a kid that never had any money when I was at school. Some of you may be in this situation. I worked for my dad. You know what my dad paid? Nothing. I worked for my room and board until I was about 16 years old. I worked like a slave. I hauled hay. I shoveled grain. I fed livestock. I broke horses. I did all of it. I got kicked by mules and hooked by bulls. I really did grow up in a zoo. I got bitten by baboons. One of them almost tore my right arm off when I was 12 years old. My pay was the food I ate and the bed I slept in. You know what? It was embarrassing for me in high school to go out with my friends. They'd all say, hey, let's go get a burger and a Coke and, you know, do this or that. You know what I'd say? I got to go on home, guys. Yeah, I've got work at home. Because I didn't want to be embarrassed and say, I haven't got any money to buy anything. You might be in that situation. You know what James says? You ought to be rejoicing. You ought to be rejoicing. You know why? When you've got nothing, guess what? God's going to give you everything. He loves to enrich your life. He has enriched my life. I don't know of anybody on the planet. I have never met anyone in my life that I envy or feel has been more blessed than I have. As a little kid with absolutely nothing, I used to look over the hills and wonder, what's the rest of the world like? And I would read stories and look in picture books of what it was like in Africa and India and other places. I remember seeing in... I was in the second grade and we had a little book that came out every week called the Weekly Reader. And they had a picture in the Weekly Reader of the biggest tree in the world. And it was a banyan tree in Calcutta. And I looked at the picture of that tree and I thought, oh man, if I could see that tree, I would feel like I had really accomplished something in my life. And I've stood under that tree. God has done absolutely amazing things. And someone said it earlier. I'm, I'm going to stand up here. Uh, Pastor John Francis. 
I could tell you all kinds of stories about this guy and the trials that he's been through and the way that God has lifted him up. And as he said, he took me and I'm nothing. And he lifted me up. And this man is one of the most respected men that you'll find in India. He is honored and admired, not because of who he is, but because of how humble he has been before the Lord. If you are the poor man, if you're the humble person, you ought to start rejoicing. There's treasure coming your way, I can tell you right now. And you say, well, what about the rich guy? Why would a rich guy glory in the fact, by the way, the word glory means to boast, to brag. Why would he brag about the fact that he's going to be humiliated? Because he's going to learn one of the most important lessons in life. You know, the most important thing a rich man can learn all those riches, all that power, all that influence means absolutely nothing because it's all going to pass away. How many rich people have we seen who blow their brains out, kill themselves with drugs, jump out of a 17-story window? They've got it all. They've got the money. They've got the fame. They've got the recognition, and it's driving them crazy. But how many movie stars have you known who came to faith in Jesus Christ and they turned their back on Hollywood and all the corruption and evil that's there and they walked away and they lost everything and they gained eternity and the blessing of God. So when James says count it all joy, he's actually aiming at verse 12 because he says, blessed is the man Blessed is the woman who is willing to just endure. Just endure. But endure in faith. Endure with knowledge. Endure with prayer. Endure for a purpose. Endure knowing that if you're a child of God, you have a heavenly Father who loves you like no one on this earth will ever love you. And He will only allow to touch you what is going to become a blessing in your life. The bigger the burden, the harder the climb, the more painful your life may be. Young people, if you can just get this in your mind, God is preparing you. I have a quote here. It's by a philosopher named Epictetus. I would encourage all of you who are teachers to get his book, The Enchiridion, and read it. This is what he said. It is the critical moment that shows the man so when the crisis is upon you, remember that God, like a trainer of wrestlers, has matched you with a rough and stalwart antagonist. To what end, you may ask, so that you may prove the victor in the great games. That guy lived roughly the same time as the Apostle Paul. I hope he became a believer but he certainly understood something when he made this statement. Blessed is the man. Just focus with me as I close on verse 12. Because we're going to, this is going to lead us somewhere tomorrow. Blessed is the man that perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, that is, when the race is over, when you won the prize, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised those who love him, I want to call your attention to two things here. Number one, there's only one thing that will carry you through the trials of life, and that is that you 
respond to the love of God by loving Him. John says we love Him because He first loved us. But Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And James says that God has reward prepared for those who love Him. That's the first thing I want you to ask yourself this evening. Do I really love Him? Do I show it in my life? Second thing I want you to notice is something we often skip over. There's a present and a future in verse 12. I want you to notice that he says, Blessed is the man or the woman or the young person. Blessed is means right now. Could I just suggest sitting here tonight, you're either blessed or you're not. Not because God doesn't want to bless you, but because you haven't oriented to his plan. His plan, young people, is to bless each and every one of us so that at the end of your life, you're going to be like I am getting toward close to the end of my race. I don't know how much longer my race is going to go. I've been running it a long time, over 50 years. This is a long run. Wherever you may be, to be able to say, I am blessed. As a friend of Fasolin and I, who we met in Alaska, said, I'm too blessed to be depressed. He said, I'm too anointed to be disappointed. And then I added to it, I'm too sanctified to be terrified. So we often say that when someone says, how are you doing? Too blessed to be depressed, too anointed to be disappointed, too sanctified to be terrified. How are you? And they usually stand there with their chin hanging down. The blessing is now. The reward is in the future. Blessed is the man, for he shall receive. Do you know where James came up with that little bit of just priceless wisdom? He got it from his big brother. And we're going to hear from his big brother tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful for these young people. Father, Every, if somehow if any of us could just get across to them the marvelous, magnificent plan that you have for each one of them, that you love them with an infinite love, that you surround them with your unshakable and impenetrable protection, and that not a single dart of the enemy, not a sorrow, not a tear, not a burden, can touch their life without first getting your permission. And the only reason you give permission is to teach us to be tough. Teach us to endure. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to pray. And teach us to press on to higher ground. So, Father, bless these faltering words of mine tonight. But, Father, your word never returns void. In some young man, young woman's heart tonight, you have driven the arrows of your eternal wisdom deep. And those arrows are going to bring forth fruit throughout all eternity. One day, this group is going to meet together in your presence. And one day, we are going to see what you have done in each and every life. Let it be to the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, gang.